This morning's passage comes from Psalm 116, 10 through 19. You can find it in your bulletin on page 6. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word now, your word is life. So make these words real to us. Feed us through them. And as we consider what it means to make the vow to praise and trust you during our sorrow and our suffering, Lord, encourage us to keep our eyes on the one who made a vow to us during his pain and suffering, and that is Jesus Christ, that he would never leave us nor forsake us. So, make Christ big to us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I started reading a, a book this week. It's a children's book, which is kind of my level of reading these days. Uh, Amber turned me on to it. It is a book that you can find actually in our resource room that Hope Cecere started um, a few weeks ago. It's on the, it's on the uh, second level uh, in the education wing. And uh, the book is called Hind's Feet in High Places. If you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress, it's a little bit like that. It's an allegory. It's a story of a little girl whose name is Much Afraid. And she lives in a valley called Humiliation. And that valley is ruled by a family called Fearing. Much Afraid works for a man called the Chief Shepherd or the Good Shepherd. But Much Afraid is crippled. She is disfigured. And she is a pitiful little girl. She is ruled by fear, but she wants more. So she goes to the good shepherd. And she says, I want to follow you to the high places. And he says, I will take you to the high places. The high places is a beautiful place where there is no fear and there is only love. She's excited and she wants that more than anything to go to the high places. But the way to the high places means that she has to climb a treacherous mountain. So she says to the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, she says, I can't do this because I'm crippled. Why don't you just carry me up there? And the chief shepherd said, I can't do that. But I will give you two helpers. And whenever you call on my name, I will show up immediately to help you. The two helpers that the good shepherd gives to her are portrayed as two women in veils. 
And he says to Much Afraid that in Much Afraid's language, these two women's names are sorrow and suffering. But in the high places, they have a different name that he would tell her later. Much Afraid didn't want these helpers. She said, I don't want suffering and sorrow. I want joy and peace. And the good shepherd says, sorry, these are the best travel companions I've got. The good shepherd said the key to traveling with sorrow and suffering is that you can't walk beside them or in the middle of them. You have to walk hand in hand with them. And so she trusts the shepherd, and off she goes on her adventure to the high places. When I read that this week, I thought, what a beautiful illustration of lament, what we have been studying for the last seven weeks. Lament is holding the hands of suffering and sorrow and letting our suffering and our sorrow lead us into a deeper relationship with a God who loves us. Today, as we wrap up our sermon series on lament, I just want to go back and and spend a few moments just kind of sitting in what is lament. Lament is this deep, groaning prayer to God, expressing our deep sorrow. Practically, what does that look like? Well, it can look like crying out to God while you're in your car after you've just yelled at your kids. Maybe that's a true story. Writing them down as you are sad about the brokenness that you experience in your life and the brokenness you experience in other people's life and the the brokenness you experience in this world. Writing those things down. Maybe it is praying with a friend who is sad over the brokenness that they are experiencing Laments can be 15 minutes long or they can be 15 seconds long. Laments can be pages or they can be two words. God, why? God, when? God, how? God, what? We looked at several different elements of lament over the last few weeks. Crying out to God. Remembering his faithfulness. Confessing our sin, complaining to God, asking God to search us, and then declaring God's character. And today we end with the last element of lament, a vow, a resolve to trust and praise God no matter what. I'm going to butcher this guy's last name because it's kind of spelled kind of weird, but his name is Mark Vrogop. Mark Vrogop wrote a book called Dark Mercies and Deep or Dark Clouds and Deep Mercies. And he wrote this book about lament after his his child, his baby girl, died. And this is what he says. Laments tune our hearts to trust in God. Early on, as we planted this church, we talked about the curve of our heart. And our natural curve of our heart is inward. 
And what God is doing through, suffer, through sorrow and suffering is he's bending our heart towards him. He is tuning our hearts so they are in tune with him. Mark goes on and says that lament or suffering redefines what we trust and how we talk about it. In other words, the reason why God gives us suffering and sorrow and pain and the power of lament is so that we would be able to depend more on him, have a deeper trust in him, and that we'd be able to say, just as Mark writes in his book, whatever God ordains is right, and that hard things are hard, but hard things are not bad. In the hard times, the sad times, the times you just want to give up, lament turns our complaining into confidence that God is real, that God is for us, and that he can be trusted. That God can be trusted is the central theme of the Bible. Every single story, every single verse in the Bible is about trusting God. And that God is saying, I am trustworthy. You can trust me. That is the big arc in the word of God. The story arc in the word of God. That God can be trusted and is worthy of all of our praise. From the beginning to the end, it is all about God showing us that he keeps his word to save his people. And as he reveals his glory by gathering his people, we can trust him and worship him. And that is something that I think we need to remind ourselves of every single day, that God can be trusted. And that is something that I think we need to resolve to do every single day, that God can be trusted. Psalm 116 is a psalm of a man who has gone through something horrible, and he resolves, he vows to trust and to praise God. We don't know what the psalmist went through, but we do know that it threatened his body, it threatened his mind, it threatened his very soul, and that he saw God save him over and over again, provide for him over and over again, deliver him. And so he vows. This is the statements in this passage we're going to look through. I will, he says. That's a vow. That's a resolve. I will trust God. I will Praise God no matter what. Our vow to trust and praise God in sorrow and suffering is a resolve that is grounded in the one who makes a promise to you. Mark says in his book, we trust in the one who keeps us trusting. So what we're going to see in this passage, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're actually going to preach, I'm going to preach through the whole bulletin. So this week, maybe on Wednesday, when you wonder, what does that guy even talk about on Sunday? You could open up your bulletin, and I'm going to talk about every single passage that we talk about from Psalm 16 in our bulletin. And what you're going to see is that the, the psalmist, the guy who writes this, as he's struggling and as he's vowing to, to trust in God, he's going back and forth. He says, this is what God has done, this is what I'm going to do. This is what God has done, this is what I'm going to do. In this passage, we're going to see four vows. Two of them are about trust, and two of them are about praise. 
The first one is your call to worship. So if you get your bulletin, so everybody should be looking at their bulletin. They can look at it. It's right there in front of them. Verse 2 of Psalm 16. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. There's the first vow. I will call on him. Why? Because God has inclined his ear to the psalmist. You know, listening is so powerful, isn't it? We live in a culture where listening does not happen very much. You don't have to really listen. Somebody posts something and then you post something back. You're not listening. I know I find it hard to listen. Sometimes I'm talking to people and I'm just thinking, when am I going to get to talk? When are they going to get to figure out how smart I am, right? Listening is so powerful, though. Listen is something that we all want. We want to be heard. Isn't this a beautiful part of the passage? I love the Lord, he says, because he has heard my voice. We have a God, the one who created all things from his words, inclining his ear to you, listening to you. This gives the psalmist confidence to trust God. I will call on the Lord as long as I live. There's a confidence in the writer of this psalm. He has this confidence because we have a God who hears him in his distress. How has God heard you? You know, everybody in this room right now, everyone in this room, whether you're a believer or not a believer, everyone in this room has a record of God's love towards them. This week, there's something that has happened that shows God's love towards you, that he has heard you, that he sees you. We all have a record of God's love in our life, and that love is to build trust and confidence in him. God shows up Time and time again in all sorts of ways. He inclines his ear to you. Where has he done that for you this week? Have you even taken time? Are you so busy? I know it's my struggle. I'm so busy taking the time to see how God has provided for you. Maybe you're so absorbed on social media, on your phone, or in a relationship, or at work, or whatever, with your hobbies. You don't see God's goodness to you, how he has inclined his ear to you, how he loves you. When we don't take time to see this, we don't see how God is answered. We don't have confidence in God. We don't know whether we can trust God. But the psalmist says here, I vow to call upon the name of the Lord because he has heard me. The vow that no matter what, he's going to keep going back to God, calling on God as long as he lives, because God has shown himself to be trustworthy and listened. He then goes and outlines further on in the passage. He starts to outline his distress and God's answers, right? He says, the snares of death have encompassed me, the pangs of shale, that's hell, lay hold of me. I have suffered anguish, and I called upon the name of the Lord, and God's been gracious to me. Verse, verse 5, he's righteous to me. He's merciful to me. He brings me rest. And out of that, out of what God has done for him, he vows his second vow of trust. And he says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. 
What he's saying there is, I'm going to walk with hope. I've got hope now. Because I have a God who has heard me and who has saved me. And in my lament, I'm going to trust in the hope of the Lord. He vows to trust in the hope that God brings. I think many times... When it comes to salvation, when it comes to like having a conversion experience, many times that happens because we just don't want to go to hell, right? I had a pastor friend who used to say, my job is to scare the hell out of people. And so we're terrified. And we don't want to go to hell. And we hear about this good news about Jesus, but really it outweighs just, I just don't want to go to hell. <laughs> so we believe. We get baptized. And then we go and live however we want to live. Because we say, ah, I'm saved. But we've never actually experienced God. We never experienced his love and his presence and his grace. And that is why God brings us into the valleys of sorrow and suffering to show us that there is so much more to salvation. There is so much more to experience about who he is and what he has done in the present right now. In lament, one of the vows we see is the resolve to live here and now in the land of the living in a new way, in a way of hope, in a way that reveals the hope that we really have. Hope is a powerful thing. One of my kids loves... um, Actually, a couple of my kids loves the Hunger Games series. And in the Hunger Games series is about this, this horrible world, really. It's a very cruel world, and it's run by a very cruel man named President Snow. And President Snow, and at one point, he says this, because he rules with fear. He says the only thing more powerful than fear is hope. Humans can't live without hope. And in our deep suffering, many times there seems to be no hope. But in lament, there is deep hope for our deep sorrows. The psalmist here says that he vows to live before God in the land of the living. To live with a hope. A hope that he is not alone. A hope that is derived from what? Look at verse 8. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. God's deliverance of him has brought him hope, and so he resolves to live before God. Those are the two trust vows. He trusts to call upon the name of the Lord, to have confidence in God. He, call, he uh, vows to trust in God by walking in hope. The next two vows are vows of praise. Verses 13 through 14, he says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. The psalmist resolves to trust in the salvation that only God can give. In verse 10, looking back a little bit, he says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. Basically, he's saying, this world is not going to be my salvation. There has to be something bigger and greater. 
Verse 13 and 14, this is where he resolves to lift up this cup of salvation. What is this cup of salvation? Well, literally, for this writer, what it literally means was a literal cup that they would... uh, they would have in the temple, and they were giving offerings. They would take this cup, they would fill it up with, with wine or with grape juice or with whatever, and then they would pour it out onto the altar. And that was lifting up the cup of salvation and then pouring it out like a drink offering. And so what he was saying is, he's saying, I'm going to take this cup, I'm going to fill it up, and it's going to symbolize my salvation, that my salvation overflows it's not like a little drip. It's not like a little, little drop. It overflows, and then I'm going to pour it out. The cup of salvation in the Bible is, always, is also contrasted with the cup of wrath. Many times in the Old Testament, there are verses in Psalms and in Isaiah and in Jeremiah that talk about the cup of wrath. There's a cup of salvation. There's also a cup of wrath. And that wrath is God's wrath towards all sin. And if you remember, maybe this is new to you, but Jesus Christ, before he was hung on a cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his father, he said, God, if it's your will, take this cup from me. The cup he's referring to is the cup of wrath. But instead, that cup wasn't taken from Christ, and he drank it all. All of God's wrath, and he drank it down. And he did that by hanging on that cross for our sins. And so now, what this psalmist is saying is, I vow to keep my eyes on the cup of salvation, not the cup of wrath. Now, even in my, even in my darkest moments, in my sorrow and my suffering, I'm not going to think, is God punishing me? I'm going to think God is my salvation in this. This is why we come to the table every week, because those are tiny little cups of salvation. (laughs) That's the cup of salvation that we hold up, and we remember that we are saved through Christ alone. And that is the vow that he takes here. I will lift up the cup of salvation. It also means something else. In Philippians 2, The Apostle Paul says this line. He says, I'm like a drink offering being poured out. So not only is this man vowing to lift up the cup of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, which is God's salvation for his people, but he's also saying, I'm a cup of salvation, which means I am filled with Christ And I will be poured out. So even in my lament, if that means that God is going to use me in my sadness and in my sorrow to encourage others, so be it. I vow to lift up the cup of salvation. In our lament, our vow is that even in our sorrow and our sadness, we are grateful to God for the salvation that he has given us in Jesus. And we are willing And this is the hard part. We are willing to be poured out for the sake of Christ because he was poured out for us. A vow of praise. The second vow of praise is found in verse 17. He says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. The psalmist is vowing to be grateful 
verses 15 and 16, right before this. He says, I vow to be grateful to you, to give you a sacrifice of thanksgiving, because I know how you view us. He says, precious is the, in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. He says, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosened my bonds. He says, Jesus, our God, has sees him for who he is. That he is a saint. That he is his servant. So how does he respond? He says, I vow to give you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In the Old Testament, that was literally a sacrifice. It was literally an animal or uh, bread or cereal or some grain or something like that that would have been sacrificed, burnt up for God. And it was something that was a sacrifice. It was above and beyond. It actually would have hurt the giver to give this sacrifice of thanksgiving. In the New Testament, it talks about a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What does it look like for us to give a sacrifice of thanksgiving? Romans 12 One says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does it look like for us to give a sacrifice of thanksgiving? It means giving our life. And it means that in your lamenting, in your sorrow and your sadness, you say, God, take my life and let it be consecrated whole to thee. It means taking my sorrow And letting it somehow, and only the way that God knows how, encourage the saints and further his kingdom. How we live for Christ in a way where we're willing to give up things that we can easily keep and hoard. This is another way that we can be a living sacrifice. Jesus tells this story about two people that go to the temple One is a very rich religious man and the other is a very poor widow. And the rich religious man gives lots of money, but he gives it because he's got lots of money. It doesn't hurt him. And then the poor widow, she gives out of her poverty. She doesn't give as much as the rich man does, but she gives sacrificially. It's going to hurt. And Jesus says, blessed is that one who gives out of her poverty. It cost her something. The vow to give a sacrifice of thanksgiving means we are willing to give God our whole lives. And in lament, we say, not my will be done, but your will be done. These vows, these four vows that we see in this passage are not vows to earn God's love. They are a response to God's love. If you noticed again, He kept saying what God had done for him and then how he vows to God. The motivation, though, behind all of these vows is God moving first. It is God's loving first. It's God sacrificing first. It's God coming to us first. It's God making a vow first. You see, at the very core, the very central, the very kernel of Psalm 116 is it's all about God's all-sufficient, amazing grace. Again and again, God helps us, helps his people. He is looking out for the powerless and the weak and the sorrowful. How do we know that God is looking out for you in your lament? How do we know that God sees you in your lament? Because God knows everything about lament. You see, God is the first one to ever lament. 
In Genesis 3, this is what happens. God has created this beautiful place for his beautiful people, and they ruin it all because they want more. And Adam and Eve disobey God, and this is what it says. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, some of you know this, where are you? That passage is a passage that is laced with grief and sorrow and sadness and lament. In fact, that is the very first lament. It's when God, who's created this beautiful place and has beautiful relationship with his people, and it is ruined. And that question, where are you, is a cry. It's a deep cry from God. In the Hebrew, that word call is not just this interrogation, like, where are you? It's this deep groan. Where are you? And later on, after he finds out, of course, he already knew, but when they confessed what they did, he says, what have you done? You've broken something so beautiful. And God laments. He is sad and sorrowful. And then he does something right after that. He makes the first vow. And he says, I'm going to make this right. In Genesis 3.15, he vows to send someone who will crush the serpent's head and will end the curse of sin and, and death. God's laments and then God vows. That is what we do. We lament and then we vow because God has, was the first one to lament and then vow to us. Vow to us to save us, to come to us. And what motivates that vow? Romans 5 says, love motivates that vow. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Michael Card in his book, Sacred Sorrow, says that the core of lament is the word has said. And we've talked about this word before, but it means God's loving kindness. And that is the focal point of our laments, our deep groaning, that God would show up and make everything right. And that is what we see happen in the Bible over and over again, that God keeps showing up and he makes everything right. And in the Bible... We see him doing that by turning suffering and joy, or suffering and sorrow into something more. At the end of the story of Much Afraid, she makes it to the high places. Sorry, that's a spoiler alert if you were planning to read that book. She makes it there. And after going through some very sad and scary and sorrowful things, at the very end of her journey, the good shepherd tells her the real names of suffering and, joy, and suffering and sorrow. And their real names are joy and peace. My friends, your sorrow and your sadness are what God is using to transform you 
and bring you into real joy and peace. And that is because he has vowed to do that for you. He has promised to do that for you. And this is why we come to the table Because the table, we see this clearly. At this table, there is a major judo move. Jesus' judo move, where he takes suffering and sorrow, where he takes sadness and grief, and he turns it all around. And at this table, we do not just share in the sufferings of Christ. We also share in the power of his righteousness. Because he takes at this table all of your sin, all of your sorrow, all of your sadness and shame. And he gives you all of his righteousness, all of his perfection, all of his goodness. At this table we see how Jesus meets us in our sorrow and then turns it to something good. And as you eat and drink, you drink this tiny little cup of salvation and you lift it high. I have one person who comes through the the line every Sunday and he says to me, cheers. Because that is exactly what this is. This is a celebration of the cup of salvation And as we lift it high, we remember that Christ was lifted high for our salvation, and then he was lifted high in the resurrection, and we get to share in that resurrection. This is not the end for us. Your sorrow and your suffering one day will be over, and you will be with Christ forever. So my friends, at this table, we see how sorrow and suffering becomes joy and peace, where our deepest sorrows become our deepest hope. So let's go there now. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to the table, this is, this is our altar call. As we come to the table, as we, as we say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. As we, as we vow once again to have confidence in you, to trust you, to praise you, Amidst the storms of life, Lord, we ask that you would meet us at this table, that you would once again feed us, show us who we are and whose we are, and set our eyes on the one who makes vows and then keeps vows even to his own hurt, and that is Jesus. And so as we go through the valleys of the shadow of death, as we deal with our lamenting, as we are sad, as we struggle with health problems and mental problems and relationship problems, Lord, remind us we are not alone and turn our sorrow and our suffering into joy and peace. We pray these things for your glory. Amen.